It's the 9th of June in the year of our salvation, 2007. We had just a couple days ago on Thursday the Feast of Corpus Christi in the traditional Roman calendar, and it's going to be transferred to tomorrow, which is Sunday. And this is Father Z with another podcast. Today we welcome a new guest, not one of the fathers of the church, but a relative, Johnny Come Lately, the mighty angelic doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas, who died in 1274. We'll hear some of his reflections on the Eucharist, which Holy Church included in the office, uh, both the office as it was before the Council and also in the Office of Readings as it is today in the Liturgy of the Hours. We'll also hear a reading from a book by Anscar Vonier, called The Key to the Doctrine of the Eucharist. In the traditional calendar of the Roman Catholic Church, we celebrate the solemnity of the most holy body and blood of the Lord, which we call Corpus Christi, on the Thursday after Pentecost. But in the post-conciliar calendar, it is very often and in many places transferred to a Sunday, probably so that it can get more focus. This is now done with quite a few feasts. It was done with, for example, Ascension Ascension Thursday, which I now call Ascension Thursday Sunday, and uh, the Feast of the Epiphany is also transferred like this. It, On the one hand, it does give it more emphasis for the people who are coming to church. On the other hand, it really kind of breaks up the calendar in a way I don't think the calendar was... You know, really, I don't think it's improved by moving these things. In any event, the Feast of Corpus Christi was established by Pope Urban IV in 1264, and its Mass and its office were composed by St. Thomas Aquinas. And in anticipation of the Universal Feast, there was also something going on up in Belgium a little while before Pope Urban got to work on this. In 1246, some 20 years before, uh, a, a Bishop Robert of Liège in Belgium had instituted a feast for the Eucharist at the request of an Augustinian mystic, a sister named St. Juliana of Cognon, and she died in 1252. But the Feast of Corpus Christi we celebrate today that was instituted by Pope Urban IV was inspired by a great miracle, because in 1263 a German priest, uh, whom we call Saint, uh, well, not Saint, but Peter of Prague, uh, was traveling down to Rome on pilgrimage, and he stopped at Bolsena in Italy. Now this priest, Peter, had doubts about the real presence of Christ in the host. And so when he stopped at Bolsena, he wanted to celebrate Mass at the tomb of the virgin martyr Christina. It's a beautiful little church there, too. There's a wonderful Della Robbia altar. If you ever go to Bolsena, Italy, you've got to stop there. 
there are also uh, beautiful uh, catacombs there for St. Christina. And it was at the tomb of Christina that Peter celebrated Mass. And at the consecration, blood began to drip from the host. And it bled over his hands and on to the linen corporal, the cloth spread on the altar, the one that's intended to, to uh, collect up all the little fragments of anything falls. It's called a corporal. And Peter stopped the Mass and asked to be taken to Pope Urban, who was at that time with his court in Orvieto, this beautiful town on top of a, a little little hill, a little mountain. And St. Bonaventure and St. Thomas Aquinas were both there in the papal court. And the Pope listened to the priest's account, and then he wanted a, a very thorough investigation done. And he ordered the bishop of the diocese to bring to Orvieto both the host that had bled and the stained linen corporal. And the Pope made a great procession with the entire papal court out of Orvieto to meet the other procession coming with the host and the corporal. And later on, uh, St. Juliana would urge Pope Urban to institute a universal feast. And St. Thomas Aquinas, who was in, uh, inspired by this Augustinian mystic, the sister, way up in Belgium, and also uh, asked by Pope Urban, drafted an office and a mass for this new feast day. And the relics of this great, this great miracle are still venerated in the cathedral, the Duomo of Orvieto, which was built for their display. The cornerstone was built in, uh, laid in 1290. And frankly, the cathedral and the gold reliquary are some of the marvels of the medieval period. I think the the cathedral of the of Orvieto may be. Uh, one of the most beautiful things in all of Italy. You cannot miss it if you travel there. There are fantastic bas-reliefs on the fr reliefs on the front by Maitani, and there's the Signorelli Chapel, and the, the glories of this cathedral, and the little town, and some marvelous restaurants simply don't end. You must go there sometime. Let's move right along now. We're going to hear some of the office uh, that was written, uh, collected together by Thomas Aquinas, and celebrated and read by countless of people and priests uh, for many centuries. Today we're going to hear a reading from the Opusculum 57 on the Feast of Corpus Christi by St. Thomas Aquinas. This great doctor of the church was born in about 1225 at a little place called Roca Secca. Uh, his castle is ruined. castle of his family is still uh, visible. It's down sort of near where Monte Cassino is in Italy. Eventually he became a Dominican, and uh, this great philosopher, this great theologian, standing very firmly in the Augustinian tradition, is known today as the Doctor Angelicus, the angelic doctor, or the Doctor Universalis, the universal doctor, because of the incredible breadth of his learning and the influence that he had on 
church on the church uh, Thomas Aquinas is perhaps uh, the greatest of the church's teachers and perhaps maybe even the greatest of the church's theologians though I think we can probably uh, argue very very coherently that uh, that Saint Augustine uh, could also uh, be given that uh, wonderful distinction still so important is Thomas Aquinas today uh, for anyone who's working in the church especially who's going to be a priest or be working as a theologian uh, that the Code of Canon Law issued in 1983 actually mentions Thomas Aquinas by name as the one who should be at the heart of philosophical and theological studies. It's Canon uh, 252, Section 3. It's uh, an incredible thing when someone is actually mentioned by name as being the Church's great teacher. Thomas Aquinas is probably best known for his uh, massive compendium, his uh, universal approach to theology called the Summa Theologica, and, uh, or sometimes it's called the Summa Theologiae, the summary of theology. Instead of theological summary, we can debate about the title. Some are very, very uh, insistent that it's one or the other. And uh, he is counted among one of the doctors of the church, the 33 doctors of the church. And uh, so many places, parishes, institutions have been named after Thomas Aquinas. Well, today we're going to hear from one of his little opuscula, his little works. And uh, uh, there was a list put together of, uh, of Aquinas's little works, by his faithful secretary, Reginaldus, who went everywhere with him. Uh, Reginaldus put together a list of about 70 works, even though we know that there are some, that some of the other opuscula that aren't on Reginald's list are most certainly authentic, and they can be included. But the, the opuscula, these little works, can be categorized as philosophical and theological. There are also some moral works, some canonical works, some liturgical works, uh, and some uh, little works on the religious life, and there are some catechetical instructions. So he really digs into all sorts of different questions. And uh, so, well, let's dig right in to this work, which is Opusculum 57 on the Feast of Corpus Christi. Exoperibus Sancti Tome de Aquino Presbiteri. Unigenitus Dei Filius, Sue Divinitatis Volens Nos Esse Participes, Naturam Nostram Assumpsit, 
ut homines Deus faceret factus homo. Et quod in super, quod de nostro assumsit, totum nobis contulit an salutem. Corpus namque suum pro nostra reconciliatione in ara crucis hostiam obtulit Deo Patri, sanguinem suum fudit in precium simul et blavacrum. Ut redemptia miserabili servitute, a peccatis omnibus mundaremur. Ut autem tanti beneficii iugis in nobis maneret memoria, corpus suum in cibum, et sanguinem suum in potum, sub specie panis et vini sumendum fidelibus de reliquit. O preziosum et admirandum convivium, Salutiferum et omnis suavitate Since it was the will of God's only begotten Son that men should share in his divinity, he assumed our nature in order that by becoming man he might make men gods. Moreover, when he took our flesh, he dedicated the whole of its substance to our salvation. He offered his body to God the Father on the altar of the cross as a sacrifice for our reconciliation. He shed his blood for our ransom and purification, so that we might be redeemed from our wretched state of bondage and cleansed from all sin. But to ensure that the memory of so great a gift would abide with us forever, he left his body as food and his blood as drink for the faithful to consume in the form of bread and wine. O oh, precious and wonderful banquet that brings us salvation and contains all sweetness. Could anything be of more intrinsic value? Under the old law, it was the flesh of calves and goats that was offered, but here Christ himself, the true God, is set before us as our food. What could be more wonderful than this? No other sacrament has greater healing power. Through it sins are purged away, virtues are increased, and the soul is enriched with an abundance of every spiritual gift. It is offered in the church for the living and the dead, so that what was instituted for the salvation of all may be for the benefit of all. Yet in the end, no one can fully express the sweetness of this sacrament in which spiritual delight is tasted at its very source, and in which we renew the memory of that surpassing love for us which Christ revealed in his passion. It was to impress the vastness of this love more firmly upon the hearts of the faithful that our Lord instituted this sacrament at the Last Supper. As he was on the point of leaving the world to go to the Father, after celebrating the Passover with his disciples, he left it as a perpetual memorial of his passion. It was the fulfillment of ancient figures and the greatest of all his miracles. While for those who were to experience the sorrow of his departure, it was destined to be a unique and abiding consolation. Excellentissime caritatis. Unde, ut artius huius caritatis emensitas fidelium cordibus infigeretur, in ultima cena, quando pasca cum discipulis celebrato, transiturus era de hoc mundo an patrem, 
hoc sacramentum instituit, tamquam passioni sue memoriale perenne, figurarum veterum impletivum, miraculorum abipso factorum maximum, et de sua contristatis absentia solacium singulare reliquid. Then I receive email comments or feedback or read comments on the blog from very well-meaning and pious folks who leave the impression that they think Holy Mass, uh, which some of them will you know, always call the most beautiful thing the side of heaven, is really a reflection of what is going on in heaven. They seem to think that the heavenly liturgy we echo on earth is really a kind of heavenly mass, and that in heaven we will all be participating in glorious Tridentine masses with angels as altar boys, and the immense throng of saints will be kneeling to receive Holy Communion from Christ the High Priest. Well, folks, if you have that image of mass or of the heavenly liturgy before the throne of God, you need to rid yourself of it, because that is not what's going on. The sacraments those outward signs instituted by Christ to confer grace, including the most blessed sacrament, the greatest of all the sacraments, are things of this world. They are things of the time of faith and hope that we live in now. As magnificent as they are, they will pass when this world passes. There is no mass in heaven now, and there won't be in heaven later. To get into this a little more deeply and with uh, precision, we can turn to a useful little book by Abbot Anscar Vonier called A Key to the Doctrine of the Eucharist. This was published in 1925, and it's been republished quite a few times after that. The last chapter 
talks about the transitory nature of the Eucharist. And here is that last chapter uh, with just a few edits, uh, which will tighten it up a little bit. Chapter 23, Eucharistic Consummation We have seen in one of the earlier chapters that every sacrament has an intimate connection with the future life. Et future gloriae nobis pinius datur. A pledge of future glory is given to us. Sacraments are true prophecies of the eternal glories. St. Thomas calls the sacrament prognosticum future gloriae. Third part, question 40, article 3. The sacramental graces, taken in their most specific aspect, have this characteristic of being a pledge of the eternal splendors of the life to come. Quote, in whom Christ also believing, you were signed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the pledge of our inheritance, unto the redemption of acquisition, unto the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, 13, 14. Not only do we receive the graces through the sacraments which give us strength to fight the battle of our soul and to conquer eternal life, but in them we are marked and sealed for eternal life. Quote, he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. John 6.55 there is, however, in the Catholic sacramental system a character of transitoriness, which it is very important to remember. St. Thomas never tires of alluding to the instrumental worth of the sacraments. They are the tools of God to bring about definite results, and when those are completely achieved, the tool will be laid aside by the divine artificer. Sacraments are part of the work which Christ does here on earth. They are not permanent glories of the everlasting triumph when God shall be all in all. They belong to that definite opus which Christ achieved here below, a task very clearly set him by the Father to be done in its own hour. Quote, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. John 17.4 the greatest of the sacraments, the Eucharist, is no exception to this law of transitoriness. The Eucharist, divine as it is, will pass away as faith and hope will pass away. But the graces of this sacrament, the res sacramenti, will remain for all eternity in the perfection of Christ's mystical body. The glory for which the Eucharistic mystery prepares us is something greater than the Eucharistic mystery itself. This is admitted by St. Thomas in the second article of the 79th question. Divine as the Eucharist is, life with Christ in heaven will be something diviner still. There will be truly no spiritual waste. When the long day of God's work on the souls of men will be ended, God will be found to have given the bread of life, the flesh of his Son, with lavish liberality to those who were doing the work of God. But as the work of God was this, to come to Christ in his glory, and as countless multitudes will have come to Christ in his glory, 
The Heavenly Father will be found to have been a generous householder, but not a wasteful one. The Eucharistic sacrifice shares in the transitoriness of the whole sacramental system. Its sacramental character postulates this. There will be no Eucharistic sacrifice in heaven, as there will be no baptism, as there will be no anointing with chrism. The Lamb of God will be wedded to his bride, the church, and the sacrifice of the Lamb will be succeeded by the nuptials of the Lamb. It has been a tendency of pious minds to give to the Eucharistic mystery, and above all to the Eucharistic sacrifice, a heavenly prolongation not in the sense of all things reaching consummation through the power of the Eucharist, but in the sense of a real continuation of the Eucharistic immolation in its proper kind. Some have spoken of the Sacrificium Celeste, the heavenly sacrifice, as being the third member of a great sacrificial plan of which the two first members would be the Calvary sacrifice and the earthly Eucharistic sacrifice. This introduces a useless confusion into theological thought. Heaven has no sacrifice, but is the consummation of all sacrifices. Sacrifice belongs to the period of faith and hope, where things are seen in a dark manner. To introduce sacrificial elements into the clarity of divine vision is to give to the notion of sacrifice an arbitrary extension. In heaven, sacrifices are ratified, are received, are remembered, but they are not celebrated. Heaven sings the glory of the sacrifice as the triumph of the past as one remembers the day of battle long ago on which a nation was born to liberty. Quote, and they sung a new canticle, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to take the book and to open the seals thereof, because thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God in thy blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us to our God a kingdom and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Apocalypse 5, verses 9 and 10. Whatever we read in the scriptures of the glories of the Lamb has reference to the great day when the Lamb was slain on this earth. It is clear that St. Thomas knows of no sacrificium celeste in the true sense of a sacrifice. All sacrificial activity is in the militant church. The heavenly Christ is for St. Thomas even now whilst on earth there is the daily sacrifice, in a state of consummation, not in a state of immolation. Now, immolation and consummation are contradictory terms in theology. They cannot be predicated of the same person at the same time under the same aspect. The Eucharistic Christ is immolated. The natural Christ in heaven is consummated. These are two different aspects of the same Christ, but the heavenly Christ is not at the same time consummated and immolated. Christ's priesthood is eternal, not because the sacrifice is everlasting, but because the consummation of the sacrifice is eternal. Eternity of priesthood in Christ, in the mind of St. Thomas, is a very definite thing. 
that glory which was purchased for the elect through the great sacrifice here on earth, natural and sacramental, still depends on the Lamb, who is truly the illuminator of all those who see the face of God. Christ will show unto the elect that Father whose countenance shines in infinite graciousness because the sweet odor of the ancient sacrifice remains eternally in the remembrance of God. The altar which figures so prominently in the Apocalypse is not the altar of the Holocaust, but the altar of incense. In Exodus, the children of Israel receive God's order to fashion articles for the divine worship. The altar of incense and the altar of holocaust are different in style and purpose. Quote, and all the multitude of the children of Israel being gathered together, he said to them, These are the things which the Lord hath commanded to be done. The altar of incense, and the bars, and the oil of unction, and the incense of spices, the hanging at the door of the tabernacle, the altar of holocaust, and its grate of brass, with the bars and vessels thereof, the laver and its foot. In St. John's vision, there is no altar of the holocaust, there only remains the altar of incense. Quote, and another angel came and stood before the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given to him much incense, that he should offer of the prayers of all the saints, upon the golden altar which is before the throne of God. And the smoke of the incense of the prayers of the saints ascended up before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer, and filled it with the fire of the altar, and cast it on the earth. And there were thunders, and voices, and lightnings, and a great earthquake. Apocalypse 8, 3, 4, and 5 the offerings laid on that heavenly altar are no longer body and blood, but the prayers of the saints. From the apocalyptic altar there proceeds not mercy and forgiveness, but justice and judgment, Quote, thunders and voices and lightnings and a great earthquake. It is evidently the altar of consummation, not the altar of propitiation. Prayer there is in heaven, at least till the great day of the final triumph. Christ in heaven makes unceasing intercession for us. But prayer and sacrifice are not in the same category of spiritual realities, though they both belong to the office of a priest. St. Thomas teaches that Christ could pray for himself, but that he could not offer up his sacrifice for himself. Nothing would be less justifiable than to argue from the continuation of Christ's intercession in heaven to the continuation of Christ's immolation in heaven. It would be equally impossible to find in the Tridentine presentment of the Christian sacrifice any room for the sacrificium celeste. Trent knows only of the sacrifice accomplished here on earth. The Tridentine Fathers cling to the duality of the bloody sacrifice of Calvary and the unbloody sacrifice of the sacrament. The sacrifice in glory is no part of their theology. In fact, it could not be fitted in with their theology. Quote, if anyone says that Christ has not ordered the apostles and other priests to offer up his body and his blood, let him be anathema. Council of Trent Session 22, Canon 2 
A sacrificium celeste could not be body and blood, as Christ in heaven is in fullness of his glory. The sacrifice which Christ, according to Trent, ordered the church to offer is the sacrifice of his body and blood, not the sacrifice of himself in glory. If there were now a sacrifice truly going on in heaven, our Eucharistic sacrifice here on earth, by the very nature of the supposition, would be merely the earthly representation of that heavenly act. The heavenly act would be continuous, the earthly representations would be successive. But this is not Trent, of course. Body and blood, in the historic sense, are the Tridentine notion of sacrifice. But I should not like to leave my reader, who has been so patient with me, with the thunder of an anathema in his ears, though the church's anger be not against him, but against those evil men who have cast such a blight on the western mind, when, with their insidious theology, they paralyzed it and rendered it incapable of entering into the glories of Christ's priesthood here on earth. My conclusion will be an official protestatio, which Gregory the Thirteenth exhorts every priest to recite before he approaches the altar. It is the truly sober Roman summary of the Eucharistic attitude of the Catholic mind. Quote, I want to celebrate Mass and to make the body... Ego volo celebrare missam, et conficere corpus et sanguinem Domini nostri Jesu Christi, Juxta ritum sancte Romane ecclesiae, ad laudem omnipotentis Dei, totiusque curiae triumphantis, ad utilitatem meam totiusque curiae militantis, pro omnibus qui se commendaverunt orationibus meis in genere et in specie, et pro felici statum sancte Romane ecclesiae of the Holy Roman Church. I want to celebrate Mass and to make the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ according to the rite of Holy Roman Church, to the honor of Almighty God, and the whole triumphant court, for my utility and the utility of the whole militant court, for all those who have commended themselves to my prayers, both in general and in particular, and for the happy state of the Holy Roman Church. Isn't that last prayer beautiful? It's packed with meaning. In the phrase, I want to celebrate Mass and to make, or maybe a better translation, or confect the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the priest states his intention to consecrate bread and wine according to the mind of the church. And so when he goes up to the altar, the priest already has clearly stated and, and fixed in his mind a moral intention. And that means he doesn't have to worry if, for example, uh, he might forget to be holding simultaneously in his mind all the hosts, uh, say, for example, in a ciborium that's placed on the corporal for consecration. He knows what he wants to do, and he knows what he wants to include. And in the phrase, in the honor of Almighty God and the whole triumphant court, the priest unites himself with the heavenly host who are participating in the consummation of the fruits of Christ's sacrifice. 
What the priest is doing is uniting Holy Mass, which is a sacramental continuation of the Last Supper and the sacrifice of the Lord and Calvary, with the future perfection and fulfillment of all that God has promised us. At Holy Mass, we are simultaneously embracing the past, this present, and our future glory. In the phrase, for my utility and the utility of the whole militant court, the priest states that what he is doing is for the good of his own soul, that Mass is for himself, because even though he's alter Christus, of course he needs the fruits of Holy Mass too, but he's also extending them to all the members of the church, which is the church militant here in this earthly veil. He can also pray beyond the grave for those who are in the church suffering in purgatory. Then he makes his intention and his inclusion more precise with the phrase, for all those who have commended themselves to my prayers. Mass can be celebrated with specific and with general intentions. For example, I can celebrate a votive Mass for the unity of the Church or for those who are traveling, but I can also say Mass for the benefit of a single person, living or dead. And finally, the priest brings with him to the altar the temporal and spiritual good of the Roman Church, which I believe we would also naturally need to extend and want to extend all of the other Catholic churches in union with uh, Peter's see, that is, with the Church of Rome. This is a, a truly beautiful prayer, and I urge any of my brother priests who might be listening uh, patiently to use this prayer before celebrating Holy Mass. And it may be that if you didn't know this prayer before, it might just subtly adjust your way of thinking about Mass and maybe even how you celebrate Holy Mass itself. With that, I'm going to wrap this podcast up. I'm back at the Sabine Farm. I have left Rome for the summer, and uh, it's beautiful, silent here, very, very quiet. And uh, as a matter of fact, it was so quiet. The first night I had almost a little bit, bit of a hard time getting to sleep. It was so quiet. I'm not used to this silence, although I'm getting used to it really fast. I'm also getting used to being able to cook for myself again and uh, nice uh, big American breakfasts. It's lovely. And uh, some birds and sunshine and fresh air. Oh, I, oh, I missed fresh air when I'm in Rome. The air is terrible. In any event, um, uh, we're going to be uh, celebrating the Feast of Corpus Christi in many places on Sunday. I attended a church of the Institute of Christ the King on Thursday. They had a uh, they had a wonderful, uh, wonderful mass there, and with Gregorian chant and a procession with the Blessed Sacrament and some uh, nice reflections. It was a good, a good experience. But we'll be giving these podcasts uh, to the world uh, occasionally here, even from the Sabine Farm. And you can leave voicemail if you go to the blog and scroll down to the bottom of the left, of the left sidebar. 
You can click there and you can leave voice messages, uh, which I will get. And if they're good and creative, I'll incorporate them as feedback into these podcasts. You can also see the Z-Cam once in a while. I put a, a webcam in the, the chapel here at the Sabine Farm. Check it out once in a while. And do visit the blog, WDTPRS.com, Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra. I hope all you and yours are happy and healthy and holy. God bless you. Bye-bye.